I think the, the key kind of challenge when you have like kind of the, the chance and raise some capital, it's to always focus on building the best product for the customer. So what we first do is when we start like, what do we want to do, what we don't want to do. So there's this concept of not to do lists. So when you, when you want to decide for some things which you do, you of course have to explicitly reject some other things which you do not do or not going to do. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. Welcome to the latest version of the most awesome founder podcast. This week we're doing things a little bit differently. We're doing this, uh, this episode in front of a live audience. So um, we want to thank everyone that's in attendance from the, the Kellogg VHU program with, is it Skulik or Schulich? Schulich. Schulich. Okay, that's what I thought. So proper German pronunciation from the, the Schulich School of Business at, uh, at uh, York University. <laughs> We're coming at you here from Berlin with our latest guest this month, Mr. Jochen Zierfogel of NPAL. Coming to you from WHU <laughs> on the banks of the Rhine River in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Jochen, good to have you, mate. Hi, nice having you. So, um, the listeners know we kind of do these podcasts, kind of start them off the same way, um, kind of allowing you to, to tell a little bit of a story. It would be great if you could kind of start by telling us your founder journey. Like where you come from and kind of how you got to the place that you are today. Yeah, sure. So first of all, I think I more or less stumbled into becoming a founder. So since I was 16, I wanted to go into investment banking um, and I always wanted to become a trader. So I was never into M&A, but I wanted to do trade stuff like in the movies, having loud buzzing phone calls and trading floors and whatever. Um, so during my course, like studies in school, I kind of really tried to get really hard into trading. And in my last internship during my studies, I finally made it. So I did like a training internship or trading internship and realized I simply couldn't do it. So like everything I wanted to achieve since I was 16, um, I realized in reality I, was, I didn't have the kind of capabilities which were necessary. So I wasn't quantitative enough. I wasn't diligent enough. So I was more like 80-20. My kind of colleagues and co-founders would probably say 60-40, mm -hmm. um, which, which didn't really work out. Um, and then after my master's degree, um, I moved back in home um, and tried to kind of think about what I want to do. So and then I, I came across some kind of stories like Jeff Bezos in the time was pretty big because Amazon started to kind of take off really big also it became present. Um, and then I was kind of thinking about starting an own company. Um, and then I tried to get like part-time jobs in Berlin from WHU founders. Um, simply applied with them and then this one guy who's now my co-founder I said, look, let's do it, let's go. And then I kind of um, worked for him in like as my first years, like as an, I wouldn't say, well, I would say it's like an executive assistant. So what we did actually, we kind of did a transaction of his old company for new investors. 
Um, and after like 15 months, he said, look, I'm going out. I want to find something new. And I said, that's great because I want to find something myself as well. Um, and then we found it together with Victor, like Mario, Victor and myself, uh, Empire in 2017. So how did you get onto the stuff? Maybe you could actually start by explaining what Empal does and kind of for people that aren't familiar yeah. with it, um, what you guys do. So what we do at Empal is we help homeowners in Germany to switch to fully renewable energy. Um, doesn't matter if it's like for mobility or if it's for like for your kind of fridge or whatever. Um, that you can just have clean renewable energy produced at your home. How we do? How do we do it? Um, we actually have built like a leasing product or rental product of PV, like photovoltaic systems. You know those kind of panels which produce energy, um, and help B2C customers in Germany to do the switch by providing them with the technology, with the installation service, um, with the warranty, um, and everything which could help in the, in the, in the, during the life of the system. Um, and what we also do is we connect them with each other. So we have like this big community at Empire for, for customers um, to kind of jointly do something for or against climate change. Um, and that's actually how we, how we started this, the product and the, the, the main idea behind this, we really want to do something about climate change. So a few years ago, when we talked about those kind of topics, we looked into, I don't know, South Africa. I think there were a lot of kind of uh, topics two years ago in Canada. I think there were like those wildfires a lot. Um, last summer you had it in Greece. So there's this video where you see the ferry in, in Greece and you look into the hills and it's burning everywhere. Uh, you had Germany Brandenburg, which is the kind of county around Berlin. You had massive fires a few years ago. Um, so it comes pretty close to us. And actually, it's, it's still coming. It's there. And the, the, the idea is, as of today, we're at this unique point in time where we actually can do something about it. We have the technology available to work against it or work for the preservation of the climate. Um, you also see that the charts, like the, the prices, the cost of renewable energy is much cheaper now and then our fossil fuels. So that's when we started and we, we want to have like an impact, we want to do something about it. And one of the key challenges in Germany was the product itself used to be pretty technical. And in Germany, like there are a lot of engineers, it's really tough to get into the topic. They want to know every detail, everything which can work, which cannot work. And what we did is by having this kind of rental solution, we took out the hassle of it. So it's pretty easy with us. You have like a fixed flea for 20 years. You get your system, you produce your own energy, you can keep it. Especially now, like energy prices have been rising massively in the past. We just introduced a wall box. So if you have an electric vehicle, you have like this complete infrastructure at home. So uh, when, when oil prices and, and gasoline prices in, in Germany massively increased over the past month, um, we could make sure that our customers are protected against it and do something good about it. So I want to ask you about those kind of macroeconomic changes happening around you in a second, but I'm interested in how you and your co-founders, like you came from trading, then you worked as kind of a founder associate. Maybe you can share a little bit about how you decided to tackle this problem or how you identified this solution and what made you guys think that you were the, the right team to, to take this take this venture on? Actually, it was probably more structured than, than it felt at the moment. So um, in the old company of my co-founder Mario, um, it was like a lead gen company. Um, we realized that there is a lot of interest in photovoltaic systems. A lot of people are asking themselves, I would like to change something, I want to do something. But somehow it doesn't kind of 
work in the end, they don't get it. So we were looking at it and we're asking ourselves, there's this pretty, I like there are a lot of business books probably, which are quite common. There's, I think it's Jim Collins, um, good to great, where they said there are those three circles, like where can you become the best? Where can you be like 10X factor? And, and I, I forgot to be honest, the third one. Um, but we literally sit down or sat down and kind of thought about where can we be like really good and how can we solve this issue? What can we contribute to it? We had a few ideas and uh, what we did because Victor was working in Dubai at the time. Um, we were in Berlin, so we met in Istanbul because it was in the middle. And we had like this nice Airbnb. We have like a great view on the Hagia Sophia. And actually it's pretty inspiring because when you have this kind of environment, your thoughts will kind of follow the environment. And then we kind of saw, uh, like sat down, uh, discussed it. And I think the, the, the one picture which is still in my mind is we went to like a kebab shop, kebab bar in the basement, and we kind of wrote down or noted down on a paper what we want to do. And now, like five and a half years later, actually it, it kind of became what we wrote down then, which is pretty pretty interesting. Did you start with a, a problem, or did you start with a, an idea or a solution? I think we started with a problem, because the problem was there are a lot of people who want to kind of switch to a renewable energy, but they simply cannot do it. So there's some kind of mismatch. So what is this mismatch? And then we sat down, um, we talked to each and every one which we met. So when we took a cab, for example, we talked to the cab driver and asked him, look, this is our idea, what do you think about it? So we were pretty open with our idea in general, because there's always this discussion, shall I share my idea, is going, somebody going to copy it or not? And we talked like to everyone, family, friends, um, people who don't know us, people who know us, just to make sure that we expose ourselves to as much kind of discussion and thoughts about the topic and then we it came clear that people say look it's really expensive I don't have the money so we thought about okay how can you get the money then I said look I buy it what happens if it breaks down and then we said look this is another problem and in the end it was kind of simple trial and error so for the first six months what I did after starting at WHU and doing all of these internships in like kind of large finance corporations I was sitting there picking up the phone and try to sell like two B2C customers in Brandenburg our, our kind of product, which was pretty tough because of course the first month they, you, you're just getting no's. There's not even a single kind of glimpse of yes, it's just like rejection in your face all the time. But the good thing is once you're through it, you learn on the way from real customers, like what is the real problem which they have? And then you kind of listen to them, then you can continue to build the product. And that's how we started. So we started with the problem and then kind of got some bloody no's while trying to build it. I, I'm interested like, you know, timing is so important. And where I come from in Colorado, a number of years ago, there were a ton of people entering the solar space because there were tax credits in place. So you saw a lot of entrepreneurs kind of going out and trying to sell solar systems because there was this kind of finite window of, of these tax credits that people could get. And there was a bit of a boom and bust cycle, I guess, that happened there. Did you guys see a specific timing opportunity for this? Were there uh, regulatory benefits or whatnot? Or were you just kind of sold on this is the renewable opportunity that is, is strongest? I think like it's probably not, on, not that easy to answer on the one hand. Of course, we realized that actually there's something happening in the market. So in Germany, there was a situation a few years ago when the market for PV systems, like photovoltaic systems as PV systems, uh, was highly subsidized. So in 2012, there's like this one graph which shows the kind of amount of build capacity and it, go, it grows exponentially and then it drops to literally zero like in the next year, 2013, I think. And the reason was because the government cut the subsidies. Um, so in Germany, there was the thinking, 
solar energy doesn't make sense anymore. It's just too expensive. Um, so we started to, like this was the kind of general atmosphere in Germany for the time. So when, when we started, we realized that people are kind of becoming more and more interesting or interested in, in this topic. Um, there were a lot of kind of um, interests measured probably as you like like leads generated for the topic so people were really eager to get online and understand what's happening what can i do how can i get my solution myself um, and then there's this pretty famous graph which shows that the the intersection of cost for fossil energy and renewable energy actually is there in like 2012 2011 something like this um, so there was literally no reason why you shouldn't do it because it's clean it's cheap it's renewable it's safe so why shouldn't you use it um, and this is kind of how we how we thought about it. Like there was not a moment when we sat down and said, "Look, this is the regulatory timing. We have to do it now or never." It more of kind of grew kind of naturally into it. Then we just kind of get going. So you, you talked about kind of you know I, I always think of that that Mike Tyson quote where he said, "You know, everyone thinks they have a plan until they get punched yeah. in the mouth." And you guys kind of had this pivot, right? You were. You were selling, and then you were you were you kind of pivoted the model. How did you identify that that need to pivot, and what kind of catalyzed that? Because that can be a very complex and, and difficult decision, especially for founders that have a really clear vision. So actually, the the probably the truth is that we made a plan, and we were so convinced that the product is good because it makes sense to have it. Then we had like kind of this business plan where we said like, okay, we expect to grow by this this kind of the speed, this amount, this number of customers per month, per quarter, per year, um, and it simply didn't work out. So it, it, the numbers just didn't come in. Um, so we thought pretty hard about what, what is happening. We talked to our customers, what is the reason why, even the customers who didn't buy, we asked them, look, we had a great conversation, I accept your kind of, no, it's fine, but please let me know, why didn't you do it? And then we just talked to them and we realized that, that the, the kind of psychological moment of saying yes I want to do it is so like the barrier is so high for our customers um, because they it was pretty expensive when we started the system cost like 40,000 euros so um, they were really kind of thinking twice about whether they should get it or not um, there were customers like I called them it was totally on fire and said look I can reduce your kind of electricity bill to zero euros they were great Jochen, let's do it how much does it cost I said 50,000 euros and they just hung up the phone you know it's kind of that's what's happening and then we kind of said something is not working so we kind of switched about it. We had like kind of financing options in the beginning. And then the, the, the light switch moment for us um, actually was this kind of switch to a rental system with the full service included. But I imagine that has switching from sales to rentals has pretty profound implications for how you build and fund a venture, right? Like, did that kind of change your entire strategy as well? Did you need more capital? Did you have to kind of change your organizational structure how what can you maybe dig in a little bit to the the implications as an entrepreneur for yeah. how that pivot affected you yeah sure I, I think like it didn't change the strategy because the strategy was since they one we want to switch to solar energy so it was still the same so it was just the the, the mean changed um, I think in the during the process of having this pivot and the switch it was extremely difficult extremely hard so looking back at it now and talking about it, it sounds pretty easy even for me but I remember sitting there like hours after hours in the office on the phone um, and, and, and together in the room with my co-founders um, it changed for example the way how we can scale our sales operations because this rental product is quite emotional so you have like an emotional sales approach to it whereas the technical buying product or purchasing product was pretty hard to say you need a lot of like kind of expert knowledge 
which kind of limits the amount of salespeople you can get for your organization because there are not that many experts. Right. Um, so we kind of were able to standardize it. This is, this is like one, one thing. Uh, second one was, of course, uh, because you said if you needed funding, um, if you have a rental system, we needed kind of like debt capital to fund the system for our customers because we were like a, a new startup. Um, and also there, like in the end, a few months ago, BlackRock contributed and said like, look, we want to be part of this. Um, but in the beginning, it was more like kind of like we were a young company and you can imagine how it feels to go to kind of conservative banks and tell them, look, I need money for our customers. Um, and actually, by the way, you are not going to check them. We do this for you. Um, so this is like one of the major aspects which we had at the beginning that we indeed had to kind of massively increase this kind of, of capital um, or that we had to meet this capital meet a need for our kind of um, rental systems. Do you mind me asking ballpark how many customers you guys have now? Can you Is that something you can share? I think actually it should be about like 50,000 plus, um, which is, it, it sounds a few to be honest, um, but what we also learned, or what at, at least from my personal perspective, basket size matters. Yeah. So like a PV system is like just the kind of amount of money which you have as a customer or as an entrepreneur which you can deal with. It's simply much larger than if you have like kind of, I don't know, an app where you have like a monthly fee, mm -hmm. which is also a great business, by the way. But it's just, I, I learned it for myself from my perspective. Like if I look into businesses, I really want to make sure that they understand what is the box, basket size of it and the higher the better. And I imagine a pretty high LTV too, right? Yeah. Once you get these people in, they're yeah. going to be customers for a long time. Yeah. yeah, especially because it's construction. Probably each of us have some kind of experience with it. Um, I think in Germany, pretty common is this kind of, uh, what do you call it, like the, the water counter. So they just call and say, look, I'm going to be there tomorrow, you have to be there. Right. So what we really wanted to do, we have like this kind of customer first approach. So we wanted to have the best experience for a customer who wants to have the system built up to his home that's possible. That's actually why we put the customer in the center. Um, and we always did what we call the, it's called like, in, in, like in German, it's the Mutti test, like a mother's test. So we always ask ourselves, if, if like the mother of any of us calls us today and say, look, this is the product I want to have, would we say, yes, do it? Or would we say, ah, please don't do it? And every time when someone said or objected this test and said, no, I wouldn't do it, then we kind of reiterated our product and made sure that we had a product in the end that each of us could sell actually today of arms. It's interesting. I've never heard the Mutti test, but I, I talk a lot about the OMA test, right? Which, especially when talking about sales. Like, um, if you can't explain it to your OMA in a minute at, at a busy dinner table, then you're not doing it right. And it just made me think about your process. Like, I had an enterprise SaaS company, and we had to educate and advocate to the customer before we could convert them. It sounds to me like you guys had a company, you were doing lead gen, so you're probably pretty good at filling the funnel. But what's that sales process like when you're selling a technology that is a really different alternative to the existing use case? How long was that process? How did you educate the customer to convince them that that alternative is not only good for the environment and good for the world, but also kind of utilitarian-wise, also rationally valuable? Mm, I think it's, it's, it's a pretty good question because in the beginning we had, we had this purchasing product. It took extremely long. Like I myself, because I was the first seller, we had like sales cycles, or I had sales cycles of like eight weeks, which is pretty, pretty long and pretty frustrating. Um, and with this kind of rental system, um, we made sure that, that, that because the decision becomes easier, I'm not spending 40,000 euros, I'm spending like an amount of why for the next month or years. Um, so people are kind of more open-minded 
to the idea in general. So they say, look, I can even like because our basic pro promise to our customers is um, like you do, you're not going to pay more than now with our solution. So you pay the same and you get clean energy and it's your own and you're protected for the future. Um, so so the. So once we had this product, which made it pretty simple for a customer to kind of open his mind and say, look, I can understand this, this decision, um, it, it, the sales cycle decreased from like eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks to like two, three, four uh, weeks. And one of the key decisions in this process was probably to grow the management team. So it's, it's, it's like a total team effort. And given the setup, because like Mario already had a company and sort of beforehand, um, we were able to kind of attract pretty, pretty cool people which support us in this quest for kind of becoming a more sustainable society and be, like becoming green. Um, and this was extremely helpful. So in the beginning, I think PEs call this overhiring. You get someone who's much too qualified for the process or the stage of the company right now, but he's able to grow the company over the next month and years. Um, and we had pretty good experience with this once, um, or with this approach. I just wanted to ask, I was just thinking of the language that you used, and you were talking about reducing sales cycles, right? And th that is kind of the KPI of B2B and enterprise, oftentimes. When you're thinking of B2C, you're oftentimes thinking of kind of CAC over, mm -hmm. over sales cycles. You seem to kind of maybe fall into a little bit, somewhere in between a little bit. You're selling to end customers, but you're dealing more, the, the KPI is time rather than acquisition cost or a hybrid of both? It could be probably like what we did is we, um, we were, since day one, we were looking for gross margins in general. So that's probably the, one of the key KPIs which we had. So we knew actually that through the complete process of the complete organization from the lead generation till it's completed on the roof of our customers, um, what the cost effect would be. Um, and so we just looked into like the, the gross profit margins and the absolute gross profits to make sure that what we do actually makes sense for our customers, for us. Um, so that's, that's probably what we did. Um, because you said like there's B2B and B2C. Um, in the beginning for myself, there was no distinction. There was, it works or it doesn't work. So everything which helped me to kind of become successful and to convince our customers and for our customers to get a good product was fine. So there was no kind of, we were not looking for B2C experts or B2B experts. It's just like you start a company, there's so much to do it. You look for every kind of lifeline which shows you some way forward uh, to become successful. So you were kind of the driver uh, on the sales side, predominantly, is that? I wouldn't, that say, I, I wouldn't say I was the driver, but I, w like, uh, I wouldn't even say but. I, I would say like it was the team effort. Um, and what my role in this kind of setup was, I was the guy who actually was picking up the phone and calling the customers, um, which I think is one of the best, best kind of experiences which I ever received during my journey as an entrepreneur. Because especially in the beginning, what you're actually doing as an entrepreneur is selling, saying to customers, employees, investors, it's just selling. And what you learn in sales about people um, is incredible. So that's probably um, what I did in the beginning. Um, and it's pretty nice because now when we have like those kind of successful or extremely successful sales managers, like it's always nice to know that the first customer ever in the history of Empire uh, was closed by myself. Indeed, indeed. You know, it's. Uh, I talk a lot about about this with my portfolio founders. Like, and I think we talked about it earlier today that there's two roles in a startup: you either build shit or you sell shit. Yeah. And if you're not an engineer, you better figure out how yeah. to how to sell really well. But I'm interested. Is you know, you started, you started at zero. Now you're how many employees do you have now? How big is the company? It's uh, one thousand two hundred plus. Gotcha. So, 
being a founder of a small core team and then being a founder of a thousand plus employees, oftentimes that's, it's not always the same person that leads those companies. It's 100% different skill sets. Can you share a little bit about your kind of personal evolution in being a zero to one founder to where you're really in exploration mode to being you know, a, a one to a thousand or billion founder being in more exploitation and, and growth mode? How was that learning experience for you? I would say, uh, first of all, it still takes place, <laughs> so I'm still learning. Um, I think one of the like, like two things I would like to share, um, the first one, there's this pretty famous Arnold Schwarzenegger speech where he talks about standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. um, I think if I look back at it, I would say this summarizes how I grew in the last uh, years because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. So I had mentors in the company I could talk to, like from the high level stuff to the smallest details about it, um, which, which helped me a lot to kind of being able to kind of, how do you call it, like skip certain mistakes, which I would have otherwise done. Um, on the other side, it, it means you have to trust the people that it's like, the plate's really hot, so you cannot touch it. Um, so the first one is like, we had this kind of environment of people who are pretty experienced, who had a lot of kind of, um, like they, they like to share their knowledge. So this was one of the key enablers of my growth. And the second one, I would say it's um, the personal development, because like, uh, at the beginning, when something doesn't work out, it's always about yourself. So when, like, when employees kind of, I had one employee uh, who um, he resigned, um, and the only reason why he was why he resigned was because of me. So it wasn't because he didn't like the company. It wasn't because he didn't like the product. It was the only reason was the way how I, I kind of I behaved, which was pretty tough in the beginning because there's no professional Jochen. It's always the, there's only one. So because the company, like I've got two kids, sometimes I say I've got three, I've got Anpa and I've got my, my daughters. Um, so I'm, you're pretty emotionally attached to it. And in the process of growing, it has so much kind of, it, it requires a lot of kind of personal development because a lot of stuff which you do originates from your kind of inner well-being or not well-being. Um, and so I would say like one of the key learnings there is that, that I have the people I can ask and I have this kind of chance to kind of grow personally. Um, which is also tough because in the beginning from zero to one, I think it's from Peter Thiel, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yep. um, it's like, you know everything, you do everything yourself, you fix it yourself, which is pretty rewarding. There's a problem, you take it on, you go there and you solve it. And everyone's great, let's do it again. Nice. You're like this, this cool guy from the movies. And later on when you grow and you have this kind of, you, you, you kind of cross this one barrier, it's much more about kind of systems and processes and how to enable people, how to coach them, how to get them into kind of, uh, how to teach the ability that they can do it um, and kind of letting go that you're the hero is to be honest pretty hard in the beginning well you said something that i don't hear very often right is having mentors within the company right i think i think a lot of founders look for you know people outside and they assume the role as leader but um, you really see a lot of the great leaders are the ones that look down the hierarchy for learning as well um, and you said that you were learning from people within your own organization. Um, it reminds me that I think it's Steve Jobs quote where he said, uh, we don't hire great people to, so we can tell them what to do. We hire great people so they can tell us what to do. Even though that's kind of a ubiquitous comment, I don't meet many founders that, that think like that. I would say probably it's, um, like I, I, I would probably agree with you, sorry to interrupt you, but I would agree. I would just say it's not that hierarchical in, in that regard um, because it's more like kind of we're a team and, and we do it together as a team. 
And probably I think it's, it's like a privileged situation for myself that I was able to join, like due to the founder setup. I mean, Mario he was also in WHU, Victor as well, um, but they were like six to eight years older than myself. Um, so we had like a different network which we could, could use in the beginning. So that's why I have probably the greatest guys around me in this company. Um, and they make it pretty simple to approach them. So it doesn't matter. For example, Stefan, I learned like so much about leadership from him. Like he's our sales CSO. Um, probably I learned 99% of how to lead large organization from him. And it's still the same. I mean, like if I have a question on a Saturday evening, I send him like a WhatsApp and he's answering. So it's, it's pretty nice because I can kind of facilitate myself. Um, but it's also pretty, pretty difficult because of course I want to reward those guys. They spend time, they invest in myself and I want to show them actually it was worth it. So I would say like every day I'm out of my comfort zone, like every day, um, which is pretty rewarding, but also sometimes exhausting. Right, right. So I think we should bring this conversation to the current day because the topic of, of energy is obviously a, a big one in, in the news right now, um, particularly with the, with the conflict in, in Ukraine. Can you share a little bit about, at least from the perspective of being a renewable company, how these kind of geo, global geo, geopolitical changes, um, the impacts that you see them playing and what that looks like for, for someone in the, in the solar industry? So first of all, I think um, all of us were shocked, like deeply shocked when it happened. So like I was born in 1989. Um, for me, I just know Europe as a peace zone there was no conflict no war um, so when this started everyone was in deep shock with people kind of starting platforms online to support people in ukraine we had of course like many companies in berlin this kind of initiative where you collect stuff and then you have a truck driving trucks driving down um, so the first first of like first reaction of course was the purely human one like what can you do about it how can you help um, later one i would say um, it, it, it could be, let's see how it plays out, but it could be a facilitator of the switch to renewable energies. So if you go around in, in Germany, like a lot of houses which could potentially kind of equip with solar systems and use the energy themselves, they're simply not. So like kind of the topic is pretty, pretty present in the media right now. Um, we experience significant higher demands from our customers because they think, look, I don't want to be kind of dependent on this kind of fossil energy from this country. Um, and we provide them a solution um, where they have their own kind of, I mean, their homeowners, they own their stuff. So what they now do is they start to own their energy uh, relationship or the energy consumption or production. Um, so that's probably something which, which certainly happens. For us, probably it's uh, like in the market, the, the, the key issue is more like the supply from China because they're still in like Corona lockdowns. So from a business point of view, this is probably uh, right now the bigger challenge because we have actually opened the purchasing department in Shenzhen. Mm -hmm. um, and then just when we started, there was this massive lockdown, which of course also um, made it extremely difficult to get stuff. We do so, so we, we luckily because Henning was sitting there um, he manages this topic greatly, so we, we're still able and have not, not a problem like uh, our kind of uh, uh, market participants. But this is something which happens that people actually become more kind of open-minded to the topic and they start to, to stronger ask the question, how can we become independent? I think what Habeck said, it's called like Freiheitsenergie, like freedom energy and not renewable energy. Um, so that's probably good also from like the kind of aspect of switching to renewable energies. It makes sense. 
Um, I don't know, like for, for me at least, of course it makes sense because I think the only way to generate energy should be renewable. So it, it, it should work out this way. Um, so that's what, what we experience from the global conflicts. So I mean, you know, obviously solar is one of multiple renewable energy sources, but you know, what, what it seems like the, the added value to what you guys do is also kind of this democratization, right? Where people can, can kind of produce their, their own energy, at, at least if you're, you're a homeowner that may not be applicable to someone renting an apartment in, in a city or whatnot. If Germany is indeed trying to claw their way up to be a world leader in this space again, what do you think the future of renewable and sustainable energy in, in Germany and Europe looks like? Is, is solar the dominant player? Is nuclear going to be something that comes back to the table? What, uh, what do you see the future looking like as an insider? Mm. It's good as an insider. I would say I don't know about uh, like uh, nuclear energy, so I cannot really answer for this one. I would say that um, generally speaking, like the like, it doesn't matter whether it's water, wind, um, if it's like gas or whatever, like synthetic gases, um, or the sun. It's more like we need energy. Energy is the kind of medium which connects everything. It starts in the house. You have like 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 the lights which are here. Um, also the mobility when you have an electric car, which are coming more and more. So um, I would say probably doesn't really answer your question, but I would say at least that it's renewable. Um, that's probably nice to have and probably it's going to be the only solution which you have. And I think this is what I meant, like you have this facilitator event right now, it's like a catalyst. So either way it goes big now, or we have some other topics. So I would say that, that that's what's happening right now, that the complete, like, it was nice to have, people thought about it, and now it's more or less kind of, um, you have to do it right now to, to, to kind of do it, and this could be a good push into the right direction. Um, Yes. And do you think solar is going to be uh, the dominant player, at least in maybe non-urban areas in, in Germany? I think, I, think I, I don't know if it's the dominant player, but I think it's a dominant player. So uh, having worked into this kind of area for a few years now, it simply doesn't make sense this, that you have any houses left where there's no solar system installed. It doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter if it's like kind of uh, in the north and the south. It simply doesn't make sense. So you have this kind of area or you have like kind of this this kind of it's called area probably where you can kind of install those panels and um, I mean I, I often ask people how do you realize that you have solar energy but you have kind of energy from the grid any idea how you can realize it mm. there's none you cannot it's mm. simply the same you will not be able to recognize whether the, the energy is coming from your roof or from the grid so it doesn't make any sense to not use it um, and there's a lot of potential still in the market in Germany and Europe in general so I would say it's, it certainly is going to become one of the dominant forms. And uh, I don't know if this is something you can share, but is, does NPAL have uh, bigger plans? Like you, is, is geographic expansion uh, in, the, in the future? Of course, of course. Of course. Like though we're looking into, uh, into different markets, um, uh, which could be interesting. I think the, the key, kind of challenge when you have like kind of the, the chance and raise some capital, it's to always focus on building the best product for the customer. So what we first do is when we start like, what do we want to do, what we don't want to do. So there's this concept of not to do lists. So when you when you want to decide for some things which you do, you of course have to explicitly reject some other things which you do not do or not going to do. Um, so we look into it, but we want to be really sure that when we start this step, that we, we will be able to do it the best. That's, that we could do about it. Um, 
so that's it. probably the, the biggest one was as far as the launch of this this wall box which we have because it allows you to kind of massively reduce your kind of gasoline bill. Right. I want to ask you kind of one more question about NPAL that I think is is an interesting thing about you guys in particular, and it's this this article that came out in in Grunderzena, I guess right. There were these rumors going around of of an IPO coming and there was all this talk and then that was kind of quashed. Now, I assume mo you get more and more of that kind of stuff, the more capital you raise, the more you get into into the, uh, the public eye and into the media's eye. How do you, I mean, I imagine a rumor like that going around has a pretty profound effect that you have to do some kind of crisis response to that kind of stuff. Was that something you were a, a part of? Did it have any effect on on you guys as the founders? Um, in the beginning, it kind of surprised us as well. So when, when the article, I think it was Wirtschaftswoche, um, uh, it kind of surprised us. And the end, of course, people people think about it because like you reach a certain size. Um, but for us, we would probably say it could be could be like a way in the future. Um, but as of now, we just look like what is the best next step to kind of make sure that we are able to build the best product for the team. And IPOs sound nice, um, and of course they also have their kind of uh, requirements regarding reporting and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, so we might want to make sure that we uh, use it when it's appropriate in the best way. So I always like to kind of bring these podcasts full circle back to the back to the founder. And um, you're a pretty young founder, but I, I think these questions are relevant to, to everyone. Um, Having experienced all that you have experienced on this journey in your previous ones, you know, what message do you have to kind of the next generation of entrepreneurs out there? Like any kind of wisdom that you have learned that you would share or you wish you had known when you were first, uh, you were first starting this journey? I think like one, one of the things which I kind of probably kind of worked through myself only a few weeks ago as so you, you just talked about like building shit or selling shit um, I would say it's like nobody knows shit <laughs> so when you when you talk to people you always have to, at least I for myself I always think they're such great guys they know everything they know how to do it um, and they don't they have a lot of great ideas but what is really important as a founder you kind of have to make yourself free of this kind of they know how to do it, they, they have great input, but you at least have to do it and try it yourself. So this was one of the key learnings which I had, because like it, it sounds a bit harsh to be honest, because of course a lot of people know a lot of stuff, like talking about standing on the shoulders of giants, um, but still this idea that you, when you have an idea you want to try something, you simply have to do it. It's always worth to talk to people which you trust, but in the end you have to try it until there's no guarantee that it works. Um, there's also this kind of, option that it's a failure and you think about yourself and say like what did I do mm -hmm. but this kind of everyone who knows something about anything um, has this point of where they just said look I want to achieve this I have to try it um, and kind of don't be kind of holding back or hold, hold it back hold yeah. back yeah. Um, by this kind of uh, this kind of other people would know how to do it better mm -hmm. and then it's kind of it's hard to kind of bring yourself to do it so this is probably one one of the things which I would tell myself uh, when I started that, that a lot of people know a lot of stuff and it's valuable input but in the end like you're the guy on the front line you're the guy on the phone like when you have the feeling something is working or it's not working trust your gut um, and just go for it well that led me to a follow-up question that I, that I have to ask because I think it's something that all entrepreneurs whether they've done it for 50 years or done it for for five months struggle with is like um, is balancing intuition 
versus kind of with versus data and information. You know, one of the first the one of the first founders I had on this podcast was Marco Vitor mm-hmm. of Audi Vena, right? Who is just crazy data oriented, like very pre- Peter Drucker. What gets measured gets managed. They're quantifiable with everything they do. And then you know, talking to other entrepreneurs, they're very much you know follow my instinct. You know, listen to people, communicate. It's very relationship oriented. Where do you see yourself in that in that spectrum? And do you do you think one side is more important than the other? I think it's, uh, I don't know. I, I, well, I know to be honest. My my own opinion is it's clearly an and. You need both. You need the data and you need the communication stuff. So there was this one moment when we started. I was like doing all the sales stuff, and I was asked, Jochen, I need I need the data. What are the figures? What are you doing?" And I was pretty bold in saying, "Look, you have to choose. Do you want revenue or do you want the data?" And everyone said, of course, do the revenue. And I felt so great that I was so strong and told them, look, it's about revenue. Um, but in the end, looking back, you need the kind of information to understand what is actually working, what is not working. So we had this one moment when we were thinking, we like, like in our closing conversations, our closing calls with our customers, and we said, like, look, we're so bad, our quality doesn't work out, we need more coaching, more training, better scripts, whatever. And the truth was, the, the quota was pretty high, we needed more kind of the, we had to increase the number of sales close calls, um, which we just realized when we looked into the data. So actually, I would say, my younger self would always say it's only about doing and stuff and don't waste your time with data. But as of today, and I'm still learning it, but I would say you need this kind of data view and structural view on it. Otherwise, you won't be able to kind of improve structurally. And after you have kind of, again, crossed this one barrier, it's about structuring. In German, it's called Unternehmertum. Mm-hmm. That's not only Unternehmen. So it's yeah. like you have this kind of, how can you kind of categorize it and bring in a more formalized structure? So I would certainly say it's, it's both. Um, which I learned also the hard way, but it's, it's certainly both. Um, but just naturally, I would always say I'm more 60-40. I would say yeah. just pick up the phone and call them before yeah. thinking about what you would do. Um, but in the end, you need certainly both. Right, right. All right, two, two last questions, at least for me. Um, I think most founders found them painful, but they're always nice to get a little bit of insight into someone. Um, as I've said on this podcast many times, I feel like I can learn so much from a person by... Uh, the books on their bookshelf. Um, is there a book you're reading right now? Is there something on your bedside table or something that you would recommend to the audience? I would say I, I read quite a lot of books, so at least it's my way to kind of get inspiration. Um, I think one of the most inspiring books I've read over the past five to six years is the Steve Jobs biography mm-hmm. from Isaacson. It's yep. called Isaacson. Um, because of course, like when I read those kind of biographies, I'm not the person, it's not my life, but I can see aspects of their life which can be pretty inspiring um, uh, for, for, for us or for myself. For, for example, with Steve Jobs, I mean, like what he did is he took like hardware, computer, which he could get everywhere and he built a product around it. So what I thought about, what, what kind of can I take from this kind of perspective on selling hardware, which you can get everywhere, um, to kind of what can I learn from it for my business? So like the kind of, for example, my case, the relationship um, kind of level with our partners became much more kind of important for myself. So this one was, was really, really good. Um, other books I would recommend, I personally liked uh, Total Recall, it's the biography about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of business books which can also be pretty nice. I think one of the best ones is uh, Scaling Up from Reed Hoffman, yeah. especially the first one where he talks about blitz scaling sales. I think it's like 100% how it works. So those are probably the, the three books which I would recommend you now. 
Well, it's interesting you said blitzscaling, right? Because I think you guys built NPAL in a generation where blitzscaling became a little bit more the norm mm. in Germany, right? Like, if you, maybe if you tried to build NPAL 10 years ago, you wouldn't have had access to the capital that mm. you did and, and weren't able to, to grow that fast. Do you, think that's, do you think that's the model? That's the future here? I mean, it's been in Silicon Valley that way for a long time. Probably I would say it's one of the ways. So, so when I was a bit younger, I was pretty absolute. There was only like zero and one. Mm -hmm. So what I learned in the past years, there's probably a bit more like wiggle room, I think the English word in the middle. Yeah. Um, so it's certainly one way when you want to have and want to go this way. I mean, it's pretty rewarding. It can be pretty challenging on the other hand. Um, and that's probably how I would answer the question. It's, it's one way, um, not the way. Yeah, I guess it depends on your business too, right? Like I had Christian Mehrmann on a few weeks ago and he said that it was really, he's the, one of the partners at Cherry Ventures, and, and he said that uh, it was the mobility startups and then the quick commerce startups where they were super hyper competitive, chasing market share, that showed those investors that this blitz scaling model where they need a bunch of capital, get to the top of the mountain the fastest, and then build the wall around them. But you guys didn't have a a ton of competitors in your rear view, mm -hmm. did you? No, we didn't, to be honest. In the beginning, it was pretty fragmented. The market, there was no big big brand, no big player. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of focused on this kind of target or customer segment where we said we want to rent out to our customers. Um, so we kind of could create the environment in which we operate and in which we were going to do it. So we were actually the probably like the, the, the only one who reached a kind of nationwide scale. There were a few providers, but they were pretty local because energy provision in Germany is local. Um, so that's what we did. So we, we were the first one probably to kind of become active in Germany and, and at all in general. Okay, last question, man. What is, uh, what's cycling on your playlist? Give uh, the non-Berliners a recommendation of what you're jamming out to. To be honest, I would say it's probably a bit embarrassing and uh, each of us or each of the people I know tell me it's embarrassing, but it's uh, German gangster rap. Uh, it's called Deutschrap. <laughs> um, they have like a good, a good quotes. To be honest, it sounds, I mean, of course, it's a lot of show. Um, but once you, you're kind of a bit into rap, then you kind of like those kind of like repetitive hooks and, and beats. And to be fair, I mean, it sounds a bit weird, but sometimes in their lyrics, I get inspiration for working as a founder. So when they rap about their struggle and what they did and what they don't do and whatever, and how to deal with adversity, I think in some cases uh, it's pretty inspirational. Um, so I, I listen to German Deutsch rap which is a bit embarrassing. You got a favorite? When I was younger, it was probably Bushido. <laughs> and now it's probably the, 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 uh, the younger generation. Yeah, I'm definitely a Luciano guy. So check out, check out German hip hop. It's pretty dope. Or just like cruise down the street through Neukölln at night. And you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll hear it bumping on the streets. Well, folks, I'm going to wrap things up. That was Jochen Ziervogel, one of the co-founders of NPAL. Um, stay tuned in a couple weeks. We'll have a couple great episodes coming up. I believe next will be Sebastian Pollock, uh, co-founder of Amora Lee and Visionaries Club. If you like the episode, check us out on mostawesomepodcast.com. Feel free, if you like the episode, give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you didn't like the episode, just skip that part. This next is Molly.